Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Tribeca Film Festival Live from WNYC. I'm Rachel Neal. And I'm James Ramsey. All festival long, WNYC is bringing you exclusive coverage of the panels and talks featuring some of the biggest names in film. Each day, you'll hear the latest conversations from Tribeca with people like Courtney Love, Nate Silver, and Janine Garofalo talking about the projects that have fans most excited. And on today's episode, we'll hear from leading writers and thinkers about why we get so immersed in stories. Among the panelists is this guy. What up, guys? Jason Silva here, and welcome to Shots of Awe on the Test Tube Network. Shots of Awe is a series of interviews building on my recent work, my Shots of Philosophical Espresso. Shots of Awe offers a series of reflections on my current thinking on the human condition, the ways in which we use technology to transcend all previous limits, the nature of creativity, the nature of what it means to be alive, the role of philosophy in everyday life. Rachel, not going to lie, I thought this panel could be a little bit of a snooze, but now I really just want nothing more than a shot of philosophical espresso. <laughs> well, I'm glad I've got your attention. That's Jason Silva, host of YouTube series Shots and Awe. As virtual reality makes its way into more and more of our entertainment, the idea of immersion is something that filmmakers are constantly reimagining. In addition to Jason Silva, we'll hear from top science and media writers about the very awesome future of storytelling. Let's listen. I'm going to introduce some really incredible, wonderful people to come and talk to you about immersion. We don't just watch TV shows anymore. We live and breathe them in every single way with every type of content possible, and we're just diving down that rabbit hole. And so we have some great content creators who are going to talk to you about how that's affecting them as storytellers and our immersion into content every single day and every moment of our lives. It's my absolute pleasure to introduce our moderator, John Ehrlichman, Frank Rose, Jonathan Gottschall, and Jason Silva. Hi, everybody. Thank you for coming. And uh, we hope you will be fully immersed in our panel, but of course, if you need to break away to tweet about some of the cool things these guys are saying, please do that. Um, Jonathan lost his phone on the way here from Pittsburgh. How is how is that experience? Um, it's like losing 50 IQ points. You know, it's like <laughs> I can barely function in the world, especially in New York City. It's like I can't navigate, can't call people, have to figure out how to use a, cell, uh, a pay phone again. Uh, it was, it's been pretty challenging. There you go. Um, we'll explore some of these themes over the course of the hour, but, um, you know, the one thing I wanted to ask, this is a question for everybody. Um, what's a recent experience you've had, whether you're wearing virtual reality headsets or not, where you felt like you were fully in it, you were fully in the zone, nothing else mattered? Does anybody want to share a recent example? Okay, Mr. Silva. I mean, I just wanted to see the film... Ex Machina, Alex Garland's new film about Great AI, film. which I thought was a profound meditation on the nature of sentience and consciousness and so on and so forth. Um, and I think what's interesting is, you know, the word immersion has become really popular nowadays because of VR, because of Oculus, because of all these things. But let us not forget that the sort of the last altar left, the ultimate technology of immersion, I still think, is cinema in the movie theater, in the dark, in the chamber where you sit and you turn off your phone, probably the only place 
where you turn <laughs> off your phone and you are ready to receive, right? You are handing yourself over to somebody else to steer your attention for the next two hours. And hopefully, if they're good screenwriters, good directors, good filmmakers, they're going to literally pattern your imagination for the next two hours in a way that makes real life pale in comparison. I mean, that's kind of what I've always loved about cinema, is the sort of hyper-real quality that it has to take you to that other world, to sure. create, to blast new tunnels between the mind and the other. For me, it's about the intersubjective space, that liminal space. And so that film in particular, I thought, was an astonishing example of sucking you in into that other world. So without your phone, you can go see more movies as a result. <laughs> I could, but, you know, my, my, uh, the main way I'm taking in story these days is through my phone, uh, but through um, my headphones. Uh, I'm listening to a lot of podcasts, a lot of audiobooks. Audible.com has really changed my quality of life mm. for the better because there's no more boring stuff. You know, if I'm, if I'm doing the dishes or if I'm walking a dog, it's not wasted time. It's time where I'm, I'm inside this incredible story. So my, my most powerful recent immersion in storytelling has also been through a more traditional medium. Um, I've been reading up until la the last couple of days Stanley, uh, sorry, Ken Kesey's uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And I'd uh, seen the film, of course, but I'd never read the novel. And that's how I use Audible. I use it to read all those books that I should have read years ago, and I'm embarrassed that I've, I've never read. Um, but, you know, this is a, a very a traditional storytelling uh, technology. It's the spoken word. You're getting the story just like you would have gotten around uh, the ancient campfire in a hunter-gatherer setting. And it's tremendously powerful. And I just disappeared uh, into that world. There you go. For what it's worth, I've been uh, binge-watching uh, Death Wish movies. Uh, Charles Bronson's quite a badass. And, you know, you know, I just like to sit in bed with the iPad this close. Um, What's, what got you onto that? Onto Charles Bronson. What oh, I love, I love on Netflix and Amazon older content. Okay. You know, I like the originals, but I love the video store quality of Netflix and Amazon. Um, Frank, if, just to build on what Jonathan was saying, like the conceptually, is there a difference between when you are fully immersed in a book and your mind is racing and painting that picture for you versus being able to, I don't know, today literally put on a headset which shows you a world that maybe your brain couldn't have even imagined before. Yeah, I think the headset is a really different experience. Uh, the virtual reality, when it's, you know, when it's really well done, is a whole, nother, uh, a whole new level of presence that you don't get from a book or a movie. Um, but that's not to denigrate those. I think that uh, the immersive power of, of, a, of a book, certainly, and also of a movie, is that they require you to do a lot of work. You know, they, they require you to exercise your imagination. And what happens is people project themselves into stories. That's what you know, neuroscientists and cognitive scientists have realized in the last uh, four or five years, that we project ourselves into stories. We identify with the main character to a greater or lesser extent. And that's, I think, what the whole experience of immersion is all about. Um, Jason, since you were talking about movies and movie theaters, I mean, now we're hearing about stories of cinemas that, we, I mean, there are already cinemas that allow you to have an experience where there's wind blowing on you and yeah. today's version of Smell-O-Vision, but now right. I think there was just some news about using <coughs> the sides of the cinema yeah. to have 
additional screens or allow you to have an additional experience. I mean, that would be very interesting. I haven't been to one of those that's outside of like the more novelty, like sure. nature film that yeah. sprays a window on you. But it would be interesting <laughs> to see how ad, you know, advanced storytellers could incorporate something like that. There was a, a book that I stumbled upon recently called um, Shivers Down Your Spine. It was cinema, IMAX, Gothic cathedrals, and the immersive view. And what it was saying is that contemporary cinema, particularly the IMAX cinema, was the modern incarnation of the Gothic cathedral and that it was instructive media meant to act as a portal between this world and that other world, the, the numinous, the space of the transcendent, the space of dream. And for me, that's always been the appeal of becoming immersed because it hints at something more. It hints at a hidden door. You get to enter a mythopoetic realm or a liminal space between dreams and reality. It's the same way that you feel when you go to Punch Drunk's Sleep No More. Although I was just having a discussion with my friend Ken who didn't really dig the storytelling of it. But still, the immersive quality that that brought to theater to put you in that other place is always going to be appealing because it allows us to transcend the been there's and done that's of the adult mind and experience a world that's full of mystery again, an interesting space that elsewhere, anywhere but here, that I think is so appealing to human beings. You know, that's why I love stories. That's yeah. why I love becoming immersed. Yeah. Um, Jonathan, we are at this point, though, where people, more broadly speaking, are hearing about things like VR. And you know, there is this, even here at Spring Studios, people should check out some of the really cool stuff that, on, on different <coughs> floors uh, tied to that. But the world's kind of getting used to that idea conceptually of boop. Um, and yet, interactive entertainment already exists. There's already a way for um, storylines to be told that even follow where your eye is going and, and to, to change the narrative of the story based on that. So you don't necessarily actually have to have the headsets on. Um, so how should we be defining all these different terms that end up being used, uh, you know, immersive versus interactive? Yeah, I, I, uh, I think that's really interesting. I mean, if you think of what a, a story is, you know, like if you go, again, go back to that campfire with our hunter-gatherer ancestors sure. around the fire. What that is, is an attempt by the storyteller, if the storyteller is good, much of the craft of his story is about producing a virtual reality world in the audience's mind. So virtual reality isn't something new under the sun. It's something old under the sun. We have a new technology that might facilitate it and might not need to call on so much of the storyteller's craft. I think one of the things that fascinates me the most, we're, we're in this fascinating time with storytelling. Storytelling has generally evolved very slowly. Um, so you can look at things like, you know, you have oral stories, and they're oral for a long, long time. And it's not until like, you know, around 1500 when the printing press comes along, or the 15th century when the printing press uh, comes along, that we, that we bother becoming literate uh, because no one else can, uh, can afford those books. And then, you know, we have the digital revolution. Things, things are moving very slowly. So we're in this time of incredible ferment, all these different tools, all these different ways of getting stories that didn't exist before. That's fascinating. That's great. That's exciting. I'm just as fascinated, however, by how little the stories change. Mm. Right. So you have all these different delivery options, but the underlying fundamentals of how you tell the story, uh, I call it this, the universal grammar of storytelling. Uh, it usually comes down to you have a character, the character has some sort of problem, some sort of predicament, some sort of trouble in their lives, and they attempt to solve it. 
uh, stories are problem solution narratives. And yeah, if you if you flog your memory, you'll come up with an ex a counterexample or two. But they'll very much be the exceptions to prove the rule. So, in some ways, a story is like a circle. You know, it's like it's a, a circle is a circle. You can't rejigger the lines. If you if you change it, if you change the circle, it becomes non-circle. And story is kind of similar to that. We're moving into this brave new world. But the stories themselves would be completely familiar and translatable to those hunter-gatherers sitting around the hearth fire. Well, Frank, let me kind of build on that a little bit. If we think about popular stories or storylines today, one that is truly global, something like Game of Thrones, which I'm sure some people were watching last night, and HBO makes a decision to uh, change its distribution models so that you have, with relative ease, the ability to take those shows wherever you go. If you're Jonathan, he doesn't have his phone with him, so, you know, he's down for the count this week. But um, does that, even if the stories don't change, the ability to take them with, is that a leg up, if you will, for Game of Thrones? Does that, does that story become more powerful or more universal because of the fact that it, it, can, it, can, it can go with you in more places? Well, I, think I, I, I think it becomes, uh, it certainly becomes more accessible. I don't think it necessarily becomes more powerful, but I mean, there's something very interesting going on here, which is, uh, you know, online with the internet, you know, the, the internet is really a chameleon. It can be any, any kind of medium. Until, until now, every medium that we've had, had a device that it had to go with. There was a radio, there was a television set, there was a movie theater. And that is no longer the case. You know, with, with online, we can watch it on a phone, we can watch it on a laptop, we can watch it on a tablet, we can, you know, virtually any screen that exists, you know, uh, no matter how big or small, it, these, these shows travel to. But I think, I mean, I was really interested in what you were saying about the, uh, you know, the universal grammar of story. And I think that's absolutely right. And I think that's something that people tend to forget. What's happening now is that we're in the midst of a huge, uh, a, a time of huge experimentation. And that's because, uh, obviously because of the internet, because it gives us all these new powers but what I realized when I was writing The Art of Immersion was that every time there's a new communications medium that comes along, it takes people at least 20 or 30 years, if not more, to figure out what to do with it. And, uh, you know, what I'm talking about basically is the grammar of storytelling that's, that's appropriate, that's unique, to, to, or native, shall we say, to that medium. Mm -hmm. And with movies, uh, uh, you know, maybe the, the best example before now, you know, the motion picture camera was invented around 1890. It was 1915, 1916, before you regularly had feature-length films, more or less two hours, that, uh, that, that told the story and used all of the, uh, you know, all of the things that we now take for granted as, as parts of the grammar of cinema. The cuts, pans, fades, point of view shots, all of which had to be invented because until there was a movie camera, there was no way to even imagine them, right. um, much less whether they would work. Mm. Right. Uh, so, so I think what storytellers have to do now is, uh, you know, the sort of dual challenge of, uh, of, of, you know, finding the universal grammar of story, not losing sight of that, 
and yet at the same time, you know, finding the uh, grammar of uh, the internet, mm -hmm. uh, the grammar of digital storytelling, which is still very much evolving. Yeah. yeah. Jason, you had wanted to follow yeah. up. Plus, you're a storyteller on relatively Sometimes. new platforms, too. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I, I've done a lot of content on the web in the short form, and I have found that that works well because people are consuming said content on smaller and smaller screen real estate. And these are dynamic screens, unlike, you know, television or movie theater was just one thing. Yeah. You know, I'm watching a piece of content on my iPhone. It's simultaneously vibrating when I get a tweet or somebody's tweeting at me. It's simultaneously revealing emails and text messages that are coming in over the screen. There you go. And look, I get it. It's great that these are devices that can do it all. But that's, to me, the opposite of being immersed. Every time something is interrupting right, my right. flow, mm -hmm. it actually causes me anxiety. Yes. Um, so I felt if I'm going to make content for these platforms, I'm going to do it short. Because maybe for three minutes, maybe I'm lucky enough that something won't come in and distract you for those three minutes. For longer form films and, and things like, like Game of Thrones that have these additional digital extensions, I just think that those are just multiple points of entry into the story world. So... I still think the, the ultimate dimension is, you know, Sunday night at your house in your home theater, get into it. But if you really love these characters and you want to stay with them longer, it's cool that there's all these like little digital extensions and you can just kind of stay in that web, stay in that mental scaffolding a little bit longer. I mean, after I watched Ex Machina the other day, I spent three hours that night watching interviews about the film, Alex Garland <laughs> talking about the screener, because I just wanted to stay in the high, basically. Sure. I wanted mm -hmm. to stay in that cognitive bliss that the film had created for me. You know, I remember checking out this book once called Cartographic Cinema that basically said that, that storytelling is a map for the imagination. It patterns the imagination. And the thing is, you know, most of the time we're kind of looking to become engaged in the real world. Like, that's why we, we sort of look for certain structures because certain structures can keep us cognitively engaged. We, can, we bore quickly. But a really good story knows how to keep you and sustain your attention for a long time. That's magic. Because only when you're immersed, Diana Slattery says only when you're immersed does any interpersonal transformation or education take place. If you're like distracted, moving back and forth between Twitter and Facebook, you're not really having an interpersonal experience. And interpersonal experience is where stories get us off. That's where we learn the lesson, right? That's where we're changed fundamentally by the experience. So that's still what I'm always looking for when I'm and, immersed. And I totally get that. And I saw somebody who put on a, heads, a VR headset here yesterday yeah. and was truly emotionally affected by, mm -hmm. I believe, all of a sudden being a, in a Syrian refugee camp, mm -hmm. um, almost transported there. Um, and it was a story that personally affected that person. And they ended up sobbing while wearing that. I mean, it's, and, and we'll hear more about that. And yet, um, a few weeks ago, Mark Zuckerberg, um, had the, the annual Facebook Developers Conference, and he has a slide, it's a great slide, and he basically talks about the evolution of sharing on Facebook. And it starts with words, it starts with text, and now photos are the most shared thing on Facebook. Soon it'll be video, pretty, getting pretty darn close. And then, of course, since they bought Oculus, you got the VR component right at the end, and he makes the prediction that eventually the most shared content on Facebook will be VR related. Now we've been we've been taught through social media to get the word out, to share, to do all this stuff. And to me, that sets a road uh, a roadmap for a company like Facebook of wanting to do um, something that, to your point, Jason, is is all about being in the moment and forgetting everything else. At the same time, 
that it's completely merged with a world that just all about telling everybody about what you're doing right now, right. which kind of blows my mind. Frank, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, you know, there's a, a really interesting outfit here called the Harmony Institute, and they did a fascinating study um, uh, of, of a TV show, they, uh, the, the, the Walking Dead, they looked at, they, they got all the tweets from the first episode uh, from Twitter. They mapped that moment by moment to the, to the story, to what was happening on TV. Um, and uh, then they got uh, some, some Columbia students who hadn't, uh, um, who hadn't seen this, uh, sh this show, but had, uh, w you know, sort of matched the demographics. And they had them watch the show, watch the same episode um, while wearing, a, you know, sort of an electromagnetic skull cap, which gives you a, a really moment-by-moment -moment picture of what's happening uh, in, in the brain. And um, what they found was that people who were, uh, th that there were certain moments that uh, everybody's brain activity spiked. Um, you know, there, there, there were certain scenes that were uh, very, you know, just completely mesmerizing. And, um, uh, but with the, with the tweets, they found that there were some uh, tweets that were about the show, um, uh, about what was, that is the action in the show, what was happening. And there were, there was another whole set of tweets that was, you know, sort of people commenting on the show, on the production values, for example, or on the acting or something like that. And so I think it's safe to conclude that, you know, one group of people was really immersed in the story you know, to the, to, the, to the extent that they could comment on it as it was happening. Um, a little bit like a, you know, a play-by-play. -play. Yeah. Um, and then another group was, you know, had sort of pulled back and were, you know, to them it was something that they were watching as opposed to something they were experiencing. This is Tribeca Film Festival Live from WNYC. Coming up next, more from the panel, Immerse Yourself. Can I get on? I wanted yeah, to yeah, respond yeah, to what you're saying there. Yeah. I, it, it kind of gets into something both of you guys are saying about, about tweeting, especially like live tweeting uh, while you're watching a TV show. Yeah. Um, so, you know. I, I'm, not, I'm not good enough. I can't do that. No <laughs> one can. can no one can. <laughs> right. There's no such thing as multitasking. You know, you exactly. do one task, one task, you know, right. moving back and forth. But so what, the, the first thing that a storyteller has to accomplish is we all have all kinds of crap to do. They have to rivet attention. Right. They got to set the hook, drag us out, and, and get us in that world. Right. So there's a cool thing about attention. Our attention spans are short, but they were always short. It wasn't. It's not just digital revolution that's done this to us. So according to the scientific studies, this is like 10, 15, 20 years ago. The average person's having about 2,000 daydreams per day, uh, an average average length of about 14 seconds. About eight hours out of your day, you're, you're just mind wandering. You're going. Your mind is flitting all over the place all of the time. But you go into story world, as you're saying. You go into a movie you love, Ex Machina. Uh, you go, you read a novel that you love, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and suddenly you have approximately zero daydreams per hour. <laughs> Your mind plays incredibly close attention and can do so for hours on end. Nothing else in human life does that. 
So it's, a, it's an experience of incredible long-term focused immersion. And some of the digital tools run completely counter to that. So if you're tweeting and, and screwing around, you know, watching uh, Walking Dead, you're, you're not getting more immersed. You're getting less immersed. Something cool might be happening to you. A cool social experience might be happening to you. But it's not deepening your immersion in the story. Because every time you do that tweet or, or receive a tweet, the spell is broken. You're out, you're out of the dream world of the story. Right. And, it's some, and you're off someplace else. You know, it's funny. Go ahead. Just to answer that, yeah. you're talking about the dream world of the story. You know, one of my, another film I really love is Inception, because a lot of people have said that that entire film is a metaphor uh, for watching movies. Yeah. That the director creates the dream, <coughs> he pulls the audience into that dream, and then we fill that dream with our subconscious. We project ourselves into the characters. We find a character that we relate to. Then we experience the a shift where we sort of take on that role. We become that person. Apparently, the parts of the brain responsible for, like, self-awareness kind of go dim when you're fully immersed in movie theater. So you, like, literally forget yourself. You're in the trance. You're becoming someone else. So films, in a way, are technologically mediated waking dreams. Like, you are awake, but there is an author dream space being created, and you get to lose yourself in that. And I think that's one of the most magical, coolest, Mm -hmm. enchanting things that we've ever created this. Well, I that's mean, the it's, thing. It's, it's, it's like uh, magic for the imagination. Yeah, that's why I wonder about the whole emphasis on interactivity. Right. Because much of what we want in a story is the opposite of interactivity. It's happened to me. Yeah, we yeah. want to fall through that hole. Right. We want to have that delicious sensation of losing track of ourselves right. inside of a story world. And the more interactive it is, in some cases, at least some sorts of interactivity, right. the more choices you have to make uh, the more involved you are, the less you have that sense of, of again, just kind of falling through the page right. and into story world. Well, right. maybe that exists in part because a lot of us have trouble allowing ourselves to jump into something for an extended period of time. I mean, you talk about podcasts and cereal, Peabody Day for cereal. Are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. This is incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet... We've heard the story many times about cereal. How did cereal become cereal? Um, how did everybody jump, you know, into that world? And I don't know. I'm not here. This is not a Hollywood studio marketing executive panel or anything like that. But I, I'm just curious. What is it that allows us to take that leap uh, and go into that world and shut everything else out? Is it because our friends say, "Go see Ex Machina"? I mean, what what, what is it? I mean, I I think it's. Uh, I, it's, we just have an innate desire to do this, you know, whether it's serial uh, or ex machina uh, or inception, you know, it, it, it really doesn't matter. We uh, humans have uh, a really innate desire to immerse themselves in stories. And there's a, you know, sort of budding uh, school of thought uh, that, you know, this is a really adaptive form of behavior that, you know, um, uh, s- stories uh, teach us something. Uh, not necessarily literally, but uh, you know they they contain lessons, and by immersing ourselves in stories, we you know uh, uh, it's sort of like sort of like a little kid who wants to watch the same movie over and over and over again. You know, uh, we 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 practice. You know, it becomes a form of practice that we are uh, you know that that we're going through. Um, so so. I think that's mm. a really interesting explanation for, for what's happening. The specifics of the 
of the story, uh, you know, it can be almost anything as long as it's a really well-told story. You know, it could be a podcast, um, it can be a movie, it can be, uh, you know, a book. Um. One thing I want to say about yeah. serial, serial in particular, I think, mm -hmm. I think part of what you're asking is specifically serial. And I was, kind of, I was kind of thinking about that myself. Why did serial become serial? How do they, how do they uh, take off the way they did? And I think part of it is, is they did not go with the Netflix model. They did not dump 10 episodes out at once. They put them out one at a time in a sort of old-fashioned, weekly serialized model. And what that did was it allowed time for discussion to ferment. There's cliffhangers at the end of every episode. All the fans got together, had time to tell other people, hey, you got to check this out. They got to weave their conspiracy theories. They got to, you know, have giant discussions about it. And it, it caused all this anticipation and all of this to, to brew and, and create mm. communities of people who hung out and talked about cereal. And so, again, the, there's, some, there's, there's, there's some aspects of the way storytelling is going, like towards binge viewing, for instance, that, uh, like, I don't, think, I don't know if cereal could have be become cereal if it was bingeable. Hmm. You know, I think, I mean, I think you have a point. I think that's right. But um, I think particularly for something like Serial, which, you know, didn't have any stars. It was a story that, you know, basically nobody knew about. Uh, the, the producer, the storyteller was not particularly well known. It definitely had to, uh, you it know. Had it had this American life behind it, though. Yeah, yeah right. It did have that. Yeah. But, but it needed time to, uh, you know, to, to, to sort of surface. Right. And I don't think that's necessarily the case when you have, you know, whether it's Game of Thrones or, yeah. or, yeah. or uh, you know, Orange is the New Black or something. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, and if we, if we talk a little bit more about things like virtual reality and augmented reality. Jason, I'll, I'll throw it back over to you. There's some stats that have been floating around over the last few weeks. One firm comes out and says this is going to be a $150 billion market by 2020, which inevitably brings people with dollar signs in their eyes into the market. And I think the next couple of years are going to be really fun to watch, to see what works, what doesn't work. You know, you're talking about different ways of distributing a show. VR, we don't even know yet what is the yeah. right formula. Well, what's cool is that we're witnessing the very, very, very early days of it. You know, like right now, it still makes half the people dizzy when you put it on. So it's just it's not quite there. But when you see what's possible in terms of achieving presence, it goes back to the idea of cinema as an engine of empathy. So my friend was one of the guys that shot the Syrian refugee VR thing for Chris Milk's company and then the UN. And, you know, he, he told me that, you know, once you put it on, it's harder to ignore than a TV screen that you can mute. So for something mm -hmm. like that, you are there. Or to so turn the you, channel really fast. Right. And, <laughs> and, uh, and so the empathy quality is, is stronger and more visceral. Um, you also have people that are talking about what you were saying, you know, versus where you have, whether you want to have agency in the virtual world or whether you want it to just happen to you like in a movie. So the video games of the future, yes, they're going to be fully immersive virtual reality. You will have agency, and it'll probably be really fun. Yeah. But Chris Milk is also experimenting with the future of narrative in virtual worlds, the handing yourself over into the dream, you know, just to see what's going to happen with you, the, the surrendering of agency, which is, I think, part of the cathartic experience of cinema is to get to experience someone else's sort of transformation and, and make it your own without having to work very hard. You know, just kind of sit there and let it happen to you. It's sort sure. of uh, catharsis a la carte. That's something I've always been fascinated by, cinema's capacity, at least vicariously, 
to let us have a real emotional experience under simulated circumstances, right? So you know, all cinema is a form of virtual reality, but as Zizek, the philosopher, used to say, it's not virtual reality, it's the reality of the virtual. Or as they say in Inception, the dream is real when you're in it. So the whole time that you're in it and you're immersed, it's really happening to you. You know, when, when a perfect storm of image and story and song comes together and moves you to tears and you, you literally cry. I mean, that for me is a real experience, as mm-hmm. significant as anything that happens in the meat space. Yeah. So that is what I think is that, that magic space, you know, like how do we make more of that, you know, <laughs> press a button, experience bliss beyond your imagination, you know. <laughs> and yeah, and, 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 and using it as a, a platform for special moments. Um, right. People who are checking out um, any of the VR here will probably see um, a portion of the Saturday Night Live 40th anniversary which I believe this is Chris as well, filmed in, in VR and you put it on and you look to your left and you see the audience there and you look to the right, you're there. Um, and, and NBC wanted to do something unique and special and lasting and memorable. Um, if you are a traditional, this is a question for anybody, but if you're a traditional, this is the experimentation time uh, in particular for traditional media which is starting to dabble in that world. Uh, can you afford not to be experimenting or trying right now, knowing that probably most of those experiences today will be um, experienced right here at events like this. People, not, not enough people have headsets in their home to, to you know, watch SNL's 40th in, in a virtual <laughs> reality style yet. Right. You know, I think, I think that uh, virtual reality, if you're, if you're trying to make something uh, in VR, if you're trying to you know, make a film, um, whether it's animated or live action, it is so different from everything else that, that, um, that we're doing, whether it's you know, film, video, all of those things, you, know, sort of, you sort of follow the same general rules in terms of the grammar. The grammar of VR is completely different. Mm. Uh, you know, you can't do cuts. You can't do, um, uh, um, you know, any of those mm. any of those techniques. Virtually all of the techniques that you use in, in you know making a film or video cannot be done in VR because uh, you know it's a 360 degree environment and uh, uh, you know people are going to be. Just um, curious, why couldn't you do a cut? Why couldn't you just blink out, you know, and, and change this, the, this, the scene? Uh, it's too, um, it's, 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 I'm not sure I know how to describe it, but it's basically, it's, it's too, um, almost like violent, hmm. you know. Too violent. Uh, it's, it's, it's too big a, it's too big a, um, a, Your a, brain just kind of won't accept yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. And certainly with, um, you know, uh, well, different kinds of, of, uh, of techniques, very few of them uh, are, are useful mm. in VR. And so people, are, people who are doing VR are t- having to figure out, you know, yeah. just from scratch, yeah. uh, how, to, how to make it work. So I think that's a real commitment. Uh, you know, I know some people are doing it, and they're doing some pretty cool stuff, but, well... Whenever, whenever we, uh, we talk about virtual reality, I always, I always think about Star Trek: The Next Generation, <laughs> and they had this hollow novel, the holodeck. The holodeck, holodeck you know, right? Well, in the right. holodeck, you go on the holodeck, and you'd have a simulation of anything. Right. Um, and you could also run hollow novels on the holodeck. So if you wanted to like be Sherlock Holmes, you could go in the holodeck and be inside the Sherlock Holmes story, or you could go on a romance novel or whatever you wanted. 
And I always think, you know, Star Trek The Next Generation, all the Star Treks are sort of utopian yeah. uh, dreams. They're not dystopian at all. Right. But I can't help but see these, the holodeck as a kind of dystopian nightmare. Um, because if you did have a holodeck that could simulate anything, anything, you go in that little closet and you can, you know, save the world or master your harem or whatever you feel like doing that day, you know, why would you ever want to come out? You know, why would you, you want wouldn't. to stop being God? You wouldn't. And so the question is, is this the end of the world as we know it? Okay, Once well, this is perfected? <laughs> okay, see, that's, that's, a, that's a great point. And, right. and I can definitely see why by saying that. It's like going to be completely addicting, completely immersive in a way that real life doesn't compare. And of course we will move into these realms. Yeah. And so the first reaction is, this is horrible, right? <laughs> Except for the fact yeah. that what we call the real world is in very much, in many, many ways, also a, a matrix of our own construction, right? Our brain is behind two inches of skull. It doesn't get to know the world directly. It receives limited information from the senses, and it kind of fills in the blank and renders and constructs our experience of reality in real time. And granted, the world has gotten significantly better over the last couple of centuries, but for the most part, life was brutal, short, and very difficult for most people most of the time. So if eventually we can give ourselves, you know, call them God chambers, where we can literally live inside of universes of our own construction in virtual worlds, everybody moves into their own galaxy. Terrence McKenna... Who will keep who, the electricity on, though? Solar panels, man. You know, the, Terrence, McKenna, Terrence McKenna used to say... Terrence McKenna used to say that the, the goal of humanity is to turn ourselves inside out. And if you look at our technologies, they're all our extension of our imagination. If you look at the man-made world, that's congealed imagination. That's all congealed intent. Skyscrapers, jet engines, and movies, right? Gene Youngblood said cinema is about mankind's historical drive to manifest his consciousness outside of his mind in front of his eyes. We want to turn ourselves inside out. Imagine the intimate spaces that we can go to when instead of like talking to somebody by making little monkey noises and saying, I really love you, I wrote you a song, you get to say, come into my virtual world, come yeah. into my imagination. You can actually step into my imagination. That's the kind of future that I dream about and what becomes possible then. But you talked about utopianism. I'm the ultimate utopian, so <laughs> I'm well, hey, well, John, I worry about the electricity. Did, did you yeah. say we'll be stuck in the... I mean, you're the guy who likes to talk about us being addicted to stories. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Are we, where do you weigh in on the closet thing? Did you, What's did that? You, what, what, what do you think about the closet? Uh, I, I, I uh, you know, you have to remember how it works. You know, I'm, the book is called The Storytelling Animal. And so I argue this is, this is natural to us. It is our nature. Um, we have a natural craving for story. That's a, sort of the same as our craving for food or for sex. But we evolved in an era when story was very, very scarce. And our appetite for hunger evolved in, a, in an era when story was very, very scarce. Here's what you used to have to do. You know, just a few hundred years ago, this is just four or five hundred years ago, going back tens of thousands of years ago all through human history, if you wanted a story, you had to go find a really good storyteller and get this person to devote an hour or two to sitting down and telling you a story. <laughs> That's what you had to do. So in that world, story was very, very scarce. And story was predominantly oral up through the invention of the printing press just, you know, four or five hundred years ago. Um, so we have this incredible hunger for story that evolved in an era of story scarcity. And now we live in an era of incredible story omnipresence, where if I had my phone, I would have access 
almost literally to all the stories in the world on that phone. Incredibly cheap, incredibly available. So I have this appetite that's huge for story, and I have this incredible buffet of stories. And I sort of liken it to our diet, our appetite for food. Again, we evolved in an appetite where certain sorts of calories, where, you know, fat calories and sugar calories are very scarce. So we developed this tremendous appetite for us, for it. And that's healthy in an evolutionary environment. But when you suddenly move into an environment where there's Big Macs on every corner and grocery stores, that same appetite fattens us up and kills us young. And so there's a, there's a, there's a question about whether or not these sort of ancient intensity of appetite we have for story really does serve us well in the modern world, or if we'll get in this situation where we're just going to be, we're going to move into storyland full time and no one's going to be around to keep the electricity on or to fill our IV tubes with more food sludge um, and we'll all, and, and civilization will end. I would see that movie. Um, <laughs> Frank, so you, you talked about the, uh, the the significant differences in, in the VR landscape versus, you know, the content we've consumed, let's say, traditionally. Um, you know, I think about these big franchises like Star Wars and, I was, yeah, yes, yes, Star Wars, yes, Star Trek. Star Wars and, you know, the excitement that is building and the inevitability that people will love that theater-going experience, and it is very communal. And yet, for the most part, uh, the process, let's say if it's, a film maybe with a little less anticipation than Star Wars. The process is still to put it into the movie theater and let everything flow from there. For the most part, there are some younger media companies that say, aha, let's build for this first and then let it grow and maybe eventually it does go into movie theater. But largely the process is go through the traditional means and then move along from there. Uh, will there be a point in the near future where that changes, where it doesn't make sense for the big theatrical release to go VR first and then see what happens and what we learn and then adjust for the movie theater later? Hmm. In a way, I think uh, some version of that is already happening because, uh, you know, uh, Hollywood is such that uh, for reasons that have to do with economics, um, it has completely, for the most part, devoted itself to a blockbuster culture that almost everybody who works in it despises. Um, and so uh, uh, people make movies uh, not because they care about the story, um, but because they, uh, you know, the, the, the studio um, wants to have a, uh, uh, you know, a huge opening, a huge global opening. And that's why television has become so important, I think. I mean, it used to be, you know, as recently as 30 years ago, there was a, a stark divide between television and movies. Hollywood was movies. Television was like this other thing that nobody uh, in Hollywood really cared about. And, um, uh, you know, every once in a while, a television actor might be able to cross over, um, you know, George Clooney. But uh, it was very rare. And, um, you know, what's, what's, happening with, um, what's happening now is that television has taken over, and one of the reasons, one of the key reasons, is because of serialization. Because, you know, you're able to uh, um, tell long, involved stories, Game of Thrones, you know, Mad Men, whatever, um, in a way that you can't in a movie. 
Well, and I think it's, you know, it's interesting when you think about the storytellers. Yeah, Jason, get in. Uh, you know, yeah. I, all I was going to say was, you know, you got somebody like Vince Gilligan behind Breaking Bad and now Better Call Saul, who at the very least, and maybe it's because in part what was learned with the Netflix experience or what have you or not, you know, is trying to create, obviously it's important, the character development and the traditional storytelling, but is obsessive about the look and having, a, having something that will be lasting and will um, be worth watching in 30 years, which I, you know, feels more like a filmmaking mentality than a TV-making mentality. Right. Anyway, Jason. Yeah, no, it's interesting hearing you talk about the new golden age of television because this is, mm -hmm. this is the narrative now. These premium TV shows, whether it's House of Cards or one of the other, they're just they're changing what TV is because so much of Hollywood has become just about the tenfold blockbuster at the expense of more thought-provoking films like Ex Machina. Which I <laughs> but what's, what's really interesting to me is that aesthetically and in terms of full-on immersion, nothing for me yet can compete with the full-size movie theater. And so it's frustrating that mm -hmm. I might be limited mm -hmm. more and more to just TV because it's not quite the big screen mm -hmm. experience. Also, what I love about a well-done film is it's a self-contained entity. I can give myself completely to it because it's just two hours. But when I'm binge-watching 15 episodes of House of Cards, that's asking a lot. And all of a sudden, I can't give myself with the same intensity because life gets in the way, right? Interesting. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, shit, I don't want there to be another episode and another episode and another episode. I want this to be self-contained perfection. In two hours, I want the answer. You know what I mean? Well, it's and sort so of like the difference between a short story and a novel. Yeah. You know, a short yeah. story has this incredible intensity. Yeah. And you're in it for a couple, you know, for 15 yeah. pages or 20 pages. Yeah. Um, and, it's, and it is a self-contained experience. Uh, but the novel has its joys uh, as well. Yeah, so... Um, this is great. I know there are interested people who probably want to ask some questions uh, in the final minutes. I already see a hand right there. Um, so we will go to that hand. And there are microphones floating around. So uh, when, she, when she's finished, throw up your hand. We'll get your questions. This is Tribeca Film Festival Live from WNYC. Coming up next, more from the panel, Immerse Yourself. Thank you. Um, one thing that you guys have all mentioned, sort of peripherally but not directly, is that with the digital extension of film and like the increased accessibility and mobility, is this new ability to consume at your own pace. Like we do still have TV shows that like have um, regular programming with commercial breaks and stuff. But now that everything's like on the computer or even in your hand, there's a lot of like pause, replay, and even like I'm going to watch this episode like definitely again, probably tomorrow. And so when you were talking about the people who are tweeting about these like really tweetable shows like The Walking Dead or like Pretty Little Liars or something like that, um, those people who are like ostensibly taking themselves out of this immersive experience by tweeting about like the production quality like you mentioned are also the people who are like so invested that they're probably going to re-watch this content. And like unlike books, um, you know, there hasn't been this 
notion at the inception of film that this is something that's going to be scrutinized and studied like later for years to come. Like now there's more of an idea with like um, Better Call Saul, like what you were mentioning. Um, so I was just wondering if you've experienced that and how this phenomenon can, is, might be more immersive or might be threatening this immersive hmm. of like experience, if that yes, makes sense. You know, I, I think there's almost like two kinds of immersion these days. And, you know, one of them is voluntary and one is involuntary. And involuntary is when you slip into an altered state of consciousness, whether you're reading a book or watching a show or whatever. Um, and that's what, you know, we're talking about when you say that, that, you know, tweeting is going to pull you out of the experience. But there's this also voluntary uh, form of immersion, which is, I think, relatively new and digitally uh, enabled. And I think that's what you're talking about. I think that, uh, uh, you, you know, I mean, obviously, the whole uh, uh, direction of the entertainment business over the last 40, 50 years has been to give the, uh, you know, audience, the user, more agency, you know, more control, uh, watch it whenever, you know, replay it, all that stuff. And, um, and I think that leads to a different kind of immersion that is also um, evident when, you know, a few years ago when, when Lost was on and, and we had the Lostpedia. You could uh, contribute to it. You could also, if there was any question that you had about any, the smallest detail in the show, you could go, uh, you know, find the answer. And that's a different kind of immersion, but it's also immersive. Mm. Uh, maybe we could take a question on this side here. Sure, great. Hi. Um, I went to pick up my son before coming here and t took him for a walk. And on my way to drop him at his dad, he was like, Mom, do you know that nowadays an adult has one second less of attention than a goldfish? <laughs> so somehow, you know, like in his computer class, the teacher was telling him that all these kids that have been submerged, I'm going to say, in like, you know, video gaming or just the phone or whatever it is, are less and less going to be able to create maybe that world that you were talking about. So I feel that, yes, technology is creating these amazing experiences, almost like going to Disney when you were little, that not everybody's going to be able to appreciate in the quality that, you know, some people are going to be able to have the little capsule in their house and others are just going to not be able to have it. But it's like, how do you as storytellers having to deal with A, the ADD that we all have right now because we need immediate attention for everything and you have to be entertained otherwise you just look at your phone. Or how do you respect Game of Thrones that they go all the way to Croatia to create this amazing, massive production and people is okay watching it in the phone? There's like a... I'm just wondering about how do you train or inform or educate or create that these minds that are going to have this access to so many things that we cannot even imagine hmm. and that it can be absolutely amazing but they're not going to have, like, the core that it needs to yeah. make it be present, you know? Well, we, we've been in that situation 
I mean, even since we invented the alphabet, right? So you can use it to enrich your inner world, to create wonderful stories. Shakespeare, I mean, look what that guy did with the technology of the alphabet. But you can also use it to compose stupidity and create sort of a linguistic world for yourself that's really small and comforting and stupid, you know? So we've always, it's always been up to us how we use these tools, right? You know, fire can cook your food or it can burn your enemy. So I think we're going to see the same with these technologies, you know, but what I wouldn't assume is that they're automatically rotting our brains or anything like that. There's a great book by Stephen Johnson called Everything Bad is Good for You, where he talks about, you know, kids playing video games. Apparently, it increases their capacity for strategy, problem solving, cooperation, collaboration. That's why everybody's anxious to gamify things, right? Like, we gamify, we all of a sudden can solve, like, world diseases by, like, turning the problems into games for people to solve. So mm. I wouldn't be so... I wouldn't assume right away that these are, going to, are automatically going to become problems, but like all new possibilities for ourselves, all new things that we pay attention to, we can use these tools in positive ways or negative ways, and you know, all of us are here trying to like encourage you to think big, you know. But yeah, we we'll go back to this side. Uh, thank you, guys. This is fascinating to me. Um, this is an age-old question about you know the traditional uh, theater-going experience, and where do you where do you see that in let's say 2055? Uh, you know, maybe uh, one end of the spectrum is the uh, drive-in theater and the other one is uh, not affected at all, the, uh, you know, the traditional theater-going experience. I thought you were talking about, like, theater, the stage. And uh, I was going to say, you know, we haven't talked about that at all today. Yeah, that's true. And, boy, you talk about how the, you know, film is, you know, your, uh, it's the apogee of the story experience for you. But boy, I was just thinking as, as you mentioned that and as I misunderstood your question that maybe for me the theater is mm -hmm. uh, the intensity of seeing real people. Holy mm -hmm. crap, mm -hmm. look what's happening up there. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, always, I'm always overwhelmed by the intensity of that experience. And it's, I guess it's kind of, that's, you know, that's a virtual reality too. And it's, oh, yeah. you know, it's 3D and it's uh, an extremely <laughs> high definition. Oh, yeah. um, and Oculus isn't there yet. So uh, what, do you think, what do you think of Punch Drunk? Sleep no I more. don't know what that is. Okay, so they created a, an immersive theater experience here in New York called okay. Sleep No More. And the guys behind it are this UK immersive theater group called Punch Drunk. But they've, like, basically pushed the envelope in terms of what's possible in terms of immersion. Like, they took over a building with six floors. It's, like, uh -huh. 55 rooms. And it's, like, a hybrid of Hitchcock and Macbeth. Okay. The audience wears masks uh -huh. and are taken into this place. And it's choose-your-own-adventure kind of thing. Oh, you awesome. wander around. You wander in and out of Can scenes. Can I go tonight? I'm sure, I'm sure you could. <laughs> it's truly... Yeah. Some people argue that in terms of story, because it's so nonlinear, yeah. it's, it's a bit confounding and confusing. Yeah. But in terms of giving you an experience of another world, yeah, right. Alice in the, in yeah, the right, Wonderland, right, right. it's the most yeah. powerful that experience amazing. I've ever had. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. I, I would be curious, especially with your love of theater. That's fascinating. Yeah. You know, it's, I mean, the thing about Sleep No More and other experiences like this is there's no proscenium arts, you know, you're, there's, there's, there's nothing between you mm -hmm. and the, and the action. Yeah, no, no wall. Yeah, uh, yeah, the, the, the fourth wall, uh, never mind breaking it, it mm -hmm. doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that we are seeing more and more. I think we're seeing it in, in art as well. I mean, you know, a couple of years ago, uh, uh, um, uh, Marina Abramovich at uh, MoMA, uh, you know, people would line up for hours to, you know, sit across from her at a table um, for a few minutes. And, uh, you know, some of them would come away in tears. 
and, you know, not saying anything. Um, there's no frame. You know, art is moving away from frames and toward, you know, a total experience. And I think that's what's happening with theater. And, you know, in its own way, uh, I think that's what virtual reality is. Mm -hmm. we, uh, we have time for one more on this side. Uh, I know a lot of people have been waiting to ask. There is a... That woman a, is waving yes, her hand like, is, a like a kindergarten. <laughs> yes, yes. Like, me, right. me, 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 me. Uh, I'm very familiar with your work. And, sorry, I'm very familiar with your work, Mr. Rose. Uh, Mr. Gottschalk, I assigned them in my classes, ah, and cool. um, and also with your work as a, a journalist and an artist. Um, I have a big question. I'm wondering if the attention model is really the right and the most human model for an immersive experience. I was impressed when you talked about you know putting on the headset, and I think it's enemies where they and the person just burst into tears because mm. they're having that experience. But only once today did I ever hear the word empathy, and it was from you, Mr. Silva. And I think that empathy is, the, you know, is one of the things that we most experience when we identify with a character or another person. That's, as you talk about reading or about experiencing a story, uh, I becomes another person. It's really quite remarkable. So I'd like to, you know, I wonder if you could address that. Is attention the only model? Oh, no, I think you're right. I think, it's the, I think empathy is the holy grail. But to experience empathy, you have to be so completely focused on the other that you become the other. You've got to be free from distractions that would break the narrative spell. The word I like is intersubjectivity. So intersubjectivity is when you actually trade subjectivities with a character. You become the other. You blast new tunnels between the mind and the other. And it's the ultimate. I mean, that's like when, like, any gesture the character's face suddenly makes you well up in tears. I mean, it's like literally the most delicious experience in the world. It's like a technologically mediated Buddhism. Like, there is no I, there is no them. We are all one. You know, what is within is without, what is without is within. It's, it's pure intersubjective ecstasy. And I live for that experience. But to be able to make the trance be that powerful... You have to be in the theater. You have to be, like, primed, at least for me. Like, it means maybe even skipping breakfast because I don't want to be, like, weighed down and in my body. I want to disappear, right? I'm excited, personally, by the legalization of marijuana because I think combining marijuana with cinema is going to lead to all new intersubjective life worlds because it softens and makes us more receptive, right? It's a way of modulating attention. These are technologies of attention. Internal technologies, external technologies... Together dancing, leading us to new spaces of mind. I mean, that's, that's what I'm interested in. Jason finds a way to Lincoln 420 at the end of the day. Thank you, everybody. Thanks very much. That was great. Thanks. Thank you. Good job. Okay. Thank you. This is Tribeca Film Festival Live from WNYC. On the next episode, The Art of Documentaries.